Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is David Robson, the author of the new book, The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Change Your World. David is an award-winning science writer specializing in the extremes of the human brain, body, and behavior. In the conversation, David and I discuss what the expectation effect is and why it matters, the role our views and beliefs play, David differentiates the expectation effect from positive thinking, we talk about the power of expectations for leaders and educators, and finally we discuss the wisdom of being kind to yourself and so much more. I really enjoyed my conversation with David, and I think you will as well. You can learn more about David's work at davidrobson.me. So without any more delay, let's get on to the episode. Please welcome the wise and gracious David Robson. Well, David, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's completely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. We're going to be chatting about your new book, The Expectation Effect. But before we get into the book, I wanted to learn a little bit about you. You're a science writer, and if I was reading correctly, you, you studied mathematics in, in university. How did you end up landing as a as a science writer? Well, I mean, like um yeah, I studied maths, but it actually had quite a strong science component in some ways. So there was, you know, we um, studied like quantum mechanics, you know, theoretical physics, cosmology, but also um, a little bit about kind of um, uh, medical statistics, you know, how to really appraise a study, which has come in really useful in my journalistic career. And actually, I'd always been interested in psychology, you know, I'd always read widely around the subject. Um, so when I became a journalist, it just seemed natural that I would gravitate to those kinds of areas. How did you know, or, or when did you know that that was the path for you? It sounds like you had some clarity around that. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, you know, actually, because in England, we have quite a narrow educational system. It's not like in the US. So we you know, when we major in a subject, like we really do major in that subject. Um, so, you know, there was no chance for me to do courses in like, um, you know, English literature, foreign languages, which I'd always really loved at school. Um, it was very much, you know, maths with a bit of science. Um, but actually, you know, I'd always really loved to kind of write when I was in high school. Um, that was always really important to me. I kept it up while I was at university. Um, and then, uh, to be a science journalist, it just allowed me to really combine my two biggest passions, you know. So, um, and, you know, I, I took this job first at this kind of small technical magazine, but I just really loved it. Um, talking to people, you know, delving into the research, articulating big ideas. It was just perfect for me. I appreciate you sharing some some background. To get into this new book, maybe it might be helpful to define some terms, talk about you know, what is the expectation effect and things like placebos and, and nocebos, things that might come up throughout the conversation? Yeah, sure. So, 
um, the expectation effect I describe as this phenomenon where our beliefs create self-fulfilling prophecies and it can happen through three major mechanisms. So that could be changes to perception, changes to behaviour, and then changes to our physiology. And actually, each one of those pathways is equally important, and they're not even really independent. They actually um, interrelate and interact very strongly. You know, changes to your physiology can change your behaviour, and vice versa. Similarly, a change to your perception can actually change the way you act. So, yeah, it's all of these kind of interacting pathways that create a self-fulfilling prophecy that can have an enormous effect on our life, whether that's um, how we respond to a medical treatment, which is the placebo effect, um, whether it's how we respond to uh, exercise and a new workout, to a diet, to sleep loss, even the way we age can all be influenced by the expectation effect. And how does this differ from, say, positive thinking, law of attraction type of stuff? Could you differentiate the two? Mm, yeah, I mean, you know, I've very much tried to distance the expectation effect from the secret, you know, which proposes this law of attraction. Um, because this isn't, I mean, those books, in my opinion, they're relying on kind of pseudoscientific ideas. Like it's not about sending something like positive energy into the universe and expecting it to come back to you. You know, you can't just visualize yourself being rich and expect money to just flow into your bank account. This is much more than that. It's really looking at our specific expectations and the way they expect specifics, uh, they affect specific situations. Um, that's really important. It's so specific and it's based 100% on you know, pure scientific evidence. You know, I cite more than 450 peer-reviewed articles within my book. Um, the things that I claim are possible have been proven to be possible. It's fascinating research. I remember many years ago now watching uh, a TED Talk by Ali Akram on the expectation effect and, and mindset which is, I guess, been, you know, popular. I, I looked at it recently, up to 5 million views or so. Um, but it's been around for seven, seven years, so quite some time. But it doesn't seem like it's common knowledge to everybody, th this research. No, I don't think it is common knowledge. And actually, you know, I'm a big fan of Alia's research. She's like a big influence on the book. Um, but I tend to think even with her research, there's like this enormous focus on maybe one or two of her earliest studies. And she's she herself has done amazing research since then that have kind of expanded this idea in lots of different directions. But it's just not common knowledge. I think The Expectation Effect is really the first book to kind of bring it all together and to show how each area of our life can be shaped through our mindset um, into an expectation effect. Well, I love it. I'm excited to get into it. But to touch on placebos, maybe... A, a little deeper, so everyone is, is tracking. How does a placebo, when when people like Ali are doing doing research on different things, where does this placebo come in? Could you provide any examples? Yeah, I mean, you know, the placebo effect is just so prevalent in medicine. I mean, it would be some people do, but personally speaking, I think if you're a scientific thinker, you can't deny the placebo effect um, because all clinical trials have a placebo arm. And then the active arm where people are taking the actual drug rather than the sham treatment. And you often find that both subjectively and objectively, 
the people taking the sham treatment in the placebo arm also see some change to their symptoms. Um, so that's the placebo effect. Um, what we, what scientists like Alia and her colleagues like Fabrizio Benedetti at the University of Turin have really been doing is exploring the mechanisms for these changes. And, you know, some of the research is just so ingenious, but I'll just give one example. Um, the scientists like Benedetti, they assumed that when we receive a placebo analgesic, um, so placebo painkiller, just a sugar pill that's masquerading as um, an actual painkiller, that um, that's actually changing the expression of uh, kind of natural opioids within the brain. So the brain is capable of producing its own natural endogenous painkillers, and the placebo is triggering that. And then to prove that this was the case, they administered alongside the placebo an opioid inhibitor called naltrexone. It blocks the opioid signaling. If you take that alongside real morphine, for example, you don't feel any pain relief. Now, what was amazing here was that when they gave that surreptitiously alongside the placebo, these people also didn't experience any pain relief. So it wasn't just that they were kind of imagining themselves to be better, or they were trying to be, you know, polite to the researchers and were just telling them, oh, yeah, I feel a lot better now I've had this treatment. Like, they were actually experiencing it because of changes in the brain that could be blocked by another drug. I mean, that's pretty profound to me. Um, there's other research showing, for example, that if you deliver morphine overtly in front of the person, you know, the physician comes and gives the actual injection, that provides more powerful pain relief than if the um, the painkiller, the morphine is delivered surreptitiously through an intravenous strip, for example. So the patient is receiving the drug, but doesn't know they're receiving the drug. It's about twice as powerful when they know they're receiving the drug. You know, all of this research, I think, has helped to cement the idea that placebos, you know, are really providing some uh, identifiable, measurable, biological changes. And that's what's then really triggered so much more interest in, you know, what are the limits of this effect and how could it be used practically? It's so fascinating. I'm curious, all this research that you've done on this topic, right, writing the book, how has this shaped the way you're experiencing life and, and seeing the world day to day? Yeah, I mean, it's completely changed my life. Um, you know, uh, I would say I had a tendency to be a needless pessimist. And by that, I mean, I just carried around a lot of negative assumptions, you know, a tendency to kind of catastrophize bad events. Um, researching the expectation effect has really told me how to kind of unpick those thinking cycles and actually how to turn them into virtuous rather than vicious cycles instead. And actually everything I write about in the um, expectation effect I've tested for myself. Like there's loads more research out there that I didn't include um, because when I'm talking about interventions to, you know, improve our performance in the gym or to help recover from sleep loss or how to improve our willpower, you know, I wanted to know that those interventions were actually uh, practical to use, that in the day-to-day -day life, you know, when you're facing a challenge, that you could actually go through this kind of reframing process to change your expectations and that it would work. So, yeah, I'm really confident that all of the things I talk about can have a meaningful effect on our lives. I'm interested, this may, may be a, a difficult question to, to answer, but are there differences in the way the expectation effect influences people. I think of, um, 
this may not be a good connection, but I was thinking of like Darren Brown's Netflix specials and this susceptibility to, to influence. Is there any sort of connection there? Mm, you know, it's um, been a big topic of research in the study of placebos to look for the placebo responders, so kind of personality type. Um, the idea was if you could identify these suggestible people, you could just exclude them from the scientific studies. And that would actually make it a bit easier for the scientists to be able to work out what's the kind of direct biological action of the drug compared to the placebo effect. But actually, you know, a lot of those experiments have failed. Essentially, like, there aren't any really good predictors of who's going to respond to the placebo effect. And I would expect it's very similar for the expectation effect as a whole. Um, So just to be clear, the placebo effect is one type of expectation effect. Um, We know that things like optimism probably do help. You know, some people just naturally are a bit more Pollyanna-ish, and maybe they do find it a bit easier to kind of develop um, more positive expectations to reframe events in a more positive way. Um, to make the best of the expectation effect. But actually, the research has also shown that's not essential at all. You know, people who are pessimists can actually still change their expectations about specific events. And often it's not even a case of kind of just thinking uh, vaguely optimistically about something. It's actually almost looking at the um, events more rationally. Like I said earlier, it's avoiding that overly catastrophic thinking where you're just assuming the worst is always going to happen and it's questioning those assumptions it's almost bringing you up to a more open-minded neutral level rather than say someone who's just always smiling and bright and happy you know that's not necessary for the expectation effect at all are you familiar with the the stockdale paradox at all from from jim collins book good to great um <clears throat> the name rings a bell, but yeah, if you could explain to me a little yeah, about that, that'd I mean, be interesting. It's, it's interesting. I, I think as, as you talk about optimism and, and things like that, but in um, in Good to Great, James Stockdale was, a, for all, all the listeners, was a, a prisoner of war in Vietnam for many years and was the the highest ranking individual. So was the, the individual that was in, in charge. And in an interview with Jim Collins, Jim Collins asked, you know, who didn't make it out? And it was a quick response from Stockdale. He said the optimists didn't make it out because they were the ones that were expecting to be home by Christmas and then Christmas would come and go. And then, you know, kind of again, and, and he described that they, they died of a, of a broken heart, sad, sad story. But he talks about this and it's called the Stockdale paradox, but this idea of maintaining this unwavering faith that you you can endure and prevail regardless of the difficulties, but at the same time have the discipline to confront the the facts of your of your current reality. And he says the brutal facts. But as you talk about with reality, it's maybe not the brutal facts. It could just be the ability to confront the the facts of the of the situation. Yeah, I think that's really what I'm getting at here is that, um, I mean, you know, I think like that kind of extreme situation, I'm not actually sure that the expectation effect could really speak, um, certainly without, you know, studies looking at kind of prisoners of war, kind of that extreme trauma. I'm not confident that the expectation effect there would be as useful. But I think in general, with lots of the challenges that we're facing in life, you know, um, 
I think there is going to be a danger if you always form unrealistic expectations that are then being kind of um, your hopes are dashed time and time again. Like, I don't think that is useful. So that's why I'm trying to say in the book that people, you know, should just be reframing their expectations along lines that are totally kind of objective and reasonable. Um, I like to say really that so many of our beliefs that we carry about have a kind of objective and subjective component. So imagine you know, you believe that you're either genetically averse to exercise or that you're just naturally fit and healthy and great at workouts. Now, some of that might have like a bit of an objective basis, like maybe there's good reason to think, you know, if you um, if you try your hardest at the gym and you're just not progressing, like maybe some of that does come from your genes, but some of it might also come from this kind of overly negative assumption you've had that maybe comes back from your childhood when you were like struggling at PE lessons. You know, maybe that's, maybe actually you could even have good genes, but you're the subjective part coming from those bad experiences is kind of overriding that. And then it's creating this self-fulfilling prophecy that we know from the studies uh, will then change things like your cardiovascular fitness and your endurance, you know. So I think like we do have to own up to the fact that there's you know, a, might, might be an objective component, but we can make sure that the subjective component isn't needlessly negative. Um, that's really what I'm asking for. So when you go to the gym, like you don't have to tell yourself like you're an Olympic athlete. Like I don't think personally it's useful to visualize being an Olympic athlete. But what you can tell yourself is, which is totally scientifically proven, is that whatever your age, whatever your fitness level, if you start doing exercise and you continue doing exercise, you will improve. And actually just that realisation, rather than getting on the treadmill and catastrophizing your kind of feelings of fatigue and just assuming it's a sign that you're never going to get better, you know, just subtly adjusting your expectations in a very realistic way, that has been proven to be beneficial. So that's what I'm really asking, is not to kind of dream like big, necessarily if that's going to just lead to disappointment but just to kind of question some of the underlying assumptions and really just wonder like is it actually factually scientifically accurate and in many cases you'll find that you're being needlessly negative it sounds like if i hear you correctly there's some sort of middle way between catastrophizing Mm -hmm. and maybe crystal ball gazing some sort of extraordinary (laughs) results (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly how I see it. It's like a sweet spot, you know. Mm. You just want, there's a kind of a spectrum of beliefs, I guess, and you can hit that kind of range where it's kind of open-minded. It allows for the positive as well as, you know, the negative, like you're kind of testing yourself almost. Let me ask you, I'm curious, you talk about in the book how our minds are these prediction machines and it makes me wonder if there's any sort of use or or some of these people like Montaigne and Socrates were onto something of these mantras of all that I know is nothing, you know, and Montaigne was like, I'm not even sure of, of that. Just something to maybe loosen the grip on this prediction of, of the future to live with a bit more wonder. We really don't know what's what's coming in the in the future at all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I do think there are, you know, philosophical precedents to this. I mean, I actually think Plato's idea of like, um, that we're seeing the images, the shadows in the cave rather than real life is actually kind of, um, I know Anil Serfa 
kind of major neuroscientist, he says that does kind of preempt the idea of the brain being a prediction machine, which, you know, essentially neuroscience is showing that when it comes to sensory perception, you know, we're building these simulations, the brain is building these simulations, these predictions of what it's going to see. And then that is shaping the way we process the sensory data. So we're not actually seeing the kind of real thing, we're seeing like an approximation of the thing, which feels a bit um, kind of close to what Plato was saying. Um, in terms of these ideas of like Socrates, you know, saying, um, uh, you know, he was wise because he knew he knew nothing, you know, that interests me partly because of my first book, The Intelligence Trap, um, completely different subject, but that, you know, one of the key takeaways uh, from that was how important intellectual humility is for decision making. And I actually do see this as being very relevant also to the expectation effect is just questioning your assumptions is so important. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of philosophy behind this um, that can be really useful to kind of understand and can inform our kind of the research on the expectation effect. How about for educators or, or leaders? How does this influence maybe their expectations that they have for, for the individuals that they might be teaching? Yeah, it should be really important. Um, so there was a study in the 60s, um, which looked at what was called the Pygmalion effect. Again, it's another form of the expectation effect. And essentially, the scientists um, went into a school in Oakland, California, they um, gave the kids a test and then gave like a bit of sham feedback to the teachers at the start of the term, they just told them that some of these kids were like bloomers. Um uh, the idea being they were kind of on the cusp of experiencing great intellectual growth over the next year. And they found that actually priming the teachers with those beliefs would then uh, actually then did seem to cause these children to uh, to grow intellectually. They actually saw changes in their IQ scores. Um, you know, it was as, as is often the case with these older studies. It was quite a small sample size. There are questions about the statistical kind of analyses that were done. So there had been some controversy over this, but over the last two decades, you know, in the early 2000s, 2010s, it's really been replicated many times. And it especially seems there's not just positive expectations that teachers can have, but negative expectations that can be internalised by the children. It can come from these... Um, you know, nonverbal behaviours. It's not like the teacher has to be like actually actively mean or actively um, nice to their kind of favourites or mean to the the kids they don't believe are going to achieve. It could just be subtle things like whether they make eye contact with them, whether they smile when they're speaking, if they even give them enough time to actually speak. Because if a teacher cuts off a child before they've said the answer, it kind of suggests to the child that what they have to say isn't worth listening to. That becomes absorbed. It reduces the child's sense of self-efficacy. They just feel like they're not as capable. Um, it creates anxiety. All of those things can then influence the intellectual performance. So this actually looks very robust now. And it seems that exactly the same thing will be true for adults in the workplace as well. You know, if a leader um, is communicating these negative expectations, like unfair negative expectations to the 
um, workforce, then that's going to affect their performance. And actually, there's research then showing that you can train these leaders and teachers to change the way they behave by taking videos of them and then talking them through all the way their kind of beliefs are leaking through their nonverbal body language and um, the tone of their voice, all of these things. They can change their behavior, and that does seem to be beneficial to the employees or the students. Do you see it as these maybe overarching views and beliefs that people have as, as very important? It, it reminds me of of something Brene Brown was talking about in one of her books a few few books ago. But just this idea of que- uh, a question around: Are people doing their very best? And she goes on and on about this particular question. There's there's no way to answer it. But she says, "I'm a better person when that." when the answer is yes, this view that everyone around you, people are doing their very best. And maybe you could say that from an educator standpoint, you know, are all of these people capable of performing at a high level? Yeah. This broad brush, you know, view and belief on, on human nature, I guess, if you will. Yeah, I do think that's important. And I mean, I think a lot of the research has looked at how, you know, Educators can have views not just of individual students, but actually of whole groups of uh, students. So based on their gender, based on their race, based on their socioeconomic background, you know, these implicit biases are then creating these positive or negative expectation effects. Um, now, I'm not saying that that's the only problem that people of colour might experience, but I do think it is a factor that needs to be addressed. Um, so yeah, I do think that's really important. And, you know, I think in some schools, you know, questionnaires have shown that the teachers just think that the, you know, if they're in maybe a deprived area, the teachers just think the whole classroom is unteachable. And then that obviously changes the way they interact with those students and the students' performance. You write in the book about how little things can make a, a difference, how on a in terms of uh, food or something like that, the, the the how it's named, the presentation, all of these little things can maybe influence us. I'm curious: is there anything here that can help us manage our our desires or keep us off a hedonic treadmill towards things that maybe don't provide meaning in our lives? Mm, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the big thing here, as you kind of hinted, was about food and food labeling and the kind of underlying beliefs we have about food. Um, so, you know, like, um, just to explain a bit about the kind of physiology of eating, you know, we, the gut and stomach does have sensors that can kind of broadly tell whether we've eaten or not, but it's a really ambiguous signal, like a messy signal. Um, so there's a strong psychological component in kind of how the brain interprets that signal. And we know this from amnesic patients who, because of brain damage, struggle to form new memories. Um, What the researchers found was that actually these people's um, appetite barely changes, or sense of satisfaction, barely changes before and after a meal, because they just don't have the memory of whether they've eaten and whether they should be hungry or not. They don't know how to interpret those signals. And actually, you can give them a meal, take it away, bring another one, and they've already forgotten they've eaten the first one and can quite happily eat the whole second one again. It's not like it's like the body isn't responding in the right way to the food they've eaten. Um, you know, that's an extreme example, but actually in everyday life, um, our psychology is shaping our appetite, whether we have those kind of 
hunger pangs and cravings. Um, we know, for example, if you work during a meal like lunch, um, that's interfering with the memory formation of what you've eaten. And then that can actually contribute to greater hunger later on. We know how a food is labelled can set up the expectation that it's not satisfying enough. Um, so if you eat a food that's labelled as being kind of healthy and sensible with low calories, you know, the focus is really on deprivation. That sets up the expectation that the food isn't going to satisfy you. And sure enough, you feel hungrier afterwards. And that can even change the hormonal response. So researchers have measured the hormone ghrelin. Um, that's uh, the hunger hormone. And, you know, it stimulates appetite. So the higher it is, the more hungry you feel. When you've eaten a satisfying meal, you know, had a big plate um, and you're not amnesic, when you actually remember eating that, you see that the um, ghrelin kind of rises when the meal's in front of you because, you know, you're hungry, it's telling you eat it, and then it drops rapidly. Um, so it's no longer stimulating your appetite. You don't need to find food anymore. It knows it's got enough energy. Um, but amazingly, food labels can influence that. If you drink a milkshake and it's labelled as being indulgent and decadent and delicious, and it tells you that it's got loads of calories in, you see the normal kind of um, ghrelin response that you would before and after a meal. If that shake is labelled as being like a health shake, a sensei shake, um, with very bland labelling that only focuses on its 0% fat, 0% sugars, you know, tells you it's got a low number of calories. Even if it's exactly the same milkshake, you'll have a different ghrelin response. Um, so the ghrelin level just won't change at all. Your body will still be telling you to seek out your food. And that's the worst thing for someone on a diet to have when they've eaten something that actually could have provided enough calories. But because of their expectations, their brain and their body is telling them to go out and seek more food. It, it's so fascinating. It is. It makes it sound like we're kind of nuts. Yeah, I mean... You know, I think it's easy to kind of focus on all the ways it can go haywire, can go wrong. But actually, you know, the prediction machine evolved for a reason. Like, we build these simulations because it's actually really useful for us to be able to draw on our previous experiences, draw on the context, draw on culture and language, you know, what we've heard someone saying, to help to prepare the body for the challenges ahead. You know, if you, I talk about the nocebo effect in my book, that's when negative expectations can actually make you ill. And you might think, well, why would the body ever evolve to allow your expectations alone to make you feel sick? Um, you know, it can even cause things like inflammation, you know, dietary, um, digestive problems. But actually, like, if you think about the evolutionary situation, imagine that you've all been tucking into a meal, and then one person starts to uh, kind of vomit and gets really ill with some kind of food poisoning. Now, you might not have been feeling that before you saw that other person getting really sick. But actually, it would make sense for the body to kind of eject the potential pathogen as quickly as possible. So with that renewed expectation that you're actually getting ill, you know, if you start vomiting up this food as well, that could be really protective, it could stop you getting such a serious bout of food poisoning. And in our evolutionary past, it could have actually saved your life. Um, so there's all kinds of benefits to this process. Um, I think what the recent research is just showing is that actually sometimes we do sabotage our progress. Um, we, you know, needlessly sabotage, you know, how we respond to a diet, how we respond to work, um, workouts um, by being overly negative or 
by having overly conservative uh, predictions about what we can achieve, and that we can just, you know, with small tweaks to our beliefs uh, to kind of through reappraisal and reframing, we can make the most of this and just ensure that we're actually always like uh, dealing with the challenges um, as best as we can. Any advice that comes to mind on on how you put this into practice to to just look at things in a in a rational way to ensure that you're finding that sweet spot? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it does depend on the situation. Um, but I would definitely say it's not about kind of wishful thinking. Um, it's actually just about thinking specifically about what expectation effect you're changing and then just kind of questioning whether you can um, change it to be kind of more objective to actually reflect the balance of positive and negative if if indeed there is a positive and negative side to it but um i'd give the example of with food um you know if you're dieting like um i think a lot of us can kind of sabotage the effects of our diets because we focus too much on only eating those uh, very bland foods you know like a health shake that actually just isn't very appealing and we only chose it because it's got the low calorie content um, I think it'd be much more useful if you have the resources available to be looking for foods with similarly low calorie content, but those that you know you really enjoy and really hunger after. You know, it could just be that you're like, if I'm on a diet and, you know, I kind of periodically just kind of try to adjust my weight a little bit to maintain a healthy weight. You know, I know that I love like a um, pasta with broccoli and anchovies. Um, if I get the portion right, you know, it can be cutting calories, but the kind of really intense flavor of the anchovies actually makes it feel like a celebration. And especially if I then kind of sprinkle some chili flakes on as well, like it's a really intense experience, gustatory experience, um, that feels indulgent. So that's stopping me from forming this kind of sense of deprivation around what I'm eating. And I can boost that by kind of deliberately imagining before I eat kind of how delicious it's going to be and to kind of cultivate that sense of anticipation and excitement. And the research shows that doing that, kind of visualizing what you're eating, really like trying to, before you even eat it, to kind of savor how good the experience is going to be, that actually cuts people's, um, the kind of portions that people will select when they're eating the meal and also reduce their snacking afterwards. And it's all just about recalibrating the prediction machine. So it's actually realizing that you're getting all the goodness and satisfaction and pleasure that you need in a fewer um, number of bites, in a smaller number of bites, compared to if you were just eating more mindlessly or having something like really unappetizing that you only chose because it's low calories, and then you're setting yourself up later on to feel that you have to kind of replenish yourself with further food, maybe by going to the um, cookie jar, you know. That's really helpful. One of my favorite studies is of the cleaning crew the, these questions around whether they exercise regularly. Uh, could you elaborate a bit on that one? Yeah, so this came from Alia Kram, who we mentioned earlier. Um, so, you know, she was at Harvard at the time, and she had this idea that some of the benefits of exercise might be akin to the placebo effect. So it's the, the belief that actually doing the exercise is good for you actually makes it good for you. Um, so to test that, she chose seven hotels, and I think... Four of them had a mindset intervention and the other four didn't. So in the four that did, um, the other three didn't. So in the four that did, she visited them and gave them a talk about their work. And again, it wasn't kind of being overly optimistic about what they were doing. 
but she realised that these cleaners just weren't interpreting the physical activity of their jobs, you know, moving furniture, shaking um, the duvet, um, cleaning the windows, you know, hoovering. They just weren't recognising that as exercise. But actually, you know, scientists who've measured the energy expenditure had shown that, you know, it's as good as going to the gym. And actually, over the course of a week, these cleaners were getting more than enough exercise to meet the government's recommendations for physical activity. So she was just educating them about the facts. She wasn't lying to them. She left some, you know, posters around, pamphlets, you know, helping them to kind of revisit these ideas during their breaks, you know, just like um, so it would be fresh in their mind. And then a month later, she returned and she found that actually they had in <coughs> their kind of physiology had changed. Their kind of workload didn't seem to have changed. Their lifestyle didn't seem to have changed. But things about their fitness and health did seem um, useful for them as if they were, and it really was as if they had transferred that time at work into time at the gym. It's interesting. Just the idea of it, it reminds me of this, you know, as you've talked about this facing the facts or bringing our awareness to something that they were already doing, which makes complete sense once it was pointed pointed out to them. How do we maybe create a bit more awareness in our in our own lives? Is there anything that that comes to mind where we might want to take a second look at? Yeah, sure. I mean, the big one for me would be our attitudes to stress. Um, and I, I have to say, actually, the you know science communicators haven't been great at communicating the fact that stress can be beneficial as well as debilitating. So we see lots of documentaries books, magazine articles telling us that, you know, stress is like bad for your performance and stress is going to, you know, kill you in the long term. It's going to give you a heart attack. So that's very deeply embedded within uh, our culture at the moment. Um, And the researchers recently have just been questioning that assumption. Um, And they've been showing that actually, if you change people's mindset, it can have beneficial short-term and long-term effects. Um, uh, so to do to do so, they actually just told again. It was just telling people the scientific facts that actually our stress response evolved for a good reason, and that was that when we face a challenge, it's kind of preparing the body to meet that challenge and the brain to meet that challenge. So when your kind of um, heart is racing, well, that's kind of you know pumping up your muscles, but it's also pumping oxygenated blood to the to the brain. So you know your your brain has more fuel to think more clearly. Hormones like cortisol, you know, we um, call them uh, call that the stress hormone, and we think of it as being quite damaging to us. But actually, you know, for short periods of time, if you have a higher level of cortisol, well, that is sharpening your thinking. It's keeping you kind of energized and on your toes, so you're not kind of overly dozy. All of that's really good if you're facing an event like a uh, taking an exam doing public speaking, going into like an important sports event. Um, and the researchers showed that just educating people about these facts had multiple effects. So it benefited the performance, you know, really quite substantially. The public speakers looked less nervous, were better able to handle the strain of the moment. People taking the exams were much better. They, you know, remembered more. They kind of solved the problems more effectively. You know, the sports teams like just worked better as a team when they had this mindset. Um but actually, it then changed some of the physiological changes that can come with stress that aren't so beneficial. So we know that um, cortisol can be beneficial, but sometimes it can cause wear and tear on our tissues. But actually, when people have a positive view of of stress, they also show a higher expression of um, of uh, so-called anabolic 
hormones, uh, ones like DHEAS and testosterone that are actually also important for kind of tissue growth and, you know, maintenance. And it seems to be that ratio of the catabolic hormones like cortisol that can cause damage to the anabolic hormones. It's that ratio that really determines the long-term effects of stress. And when you have a positive view of stress, the ratio is just much more uh, much more beneficial, much healthier. Similarly, with the heart's activity, it, your heart might still be pumping, but actually you reduce some of the resistance in your veins kind of towards the peripheries of your body. Um, so it's not putting so much strain on the heart and it recovers more quickly, you know, soon after giving your talk, you know, you you don't feel so pumped up. Actually, your body's already returning to doing the other important activities like digestion. Um, and it can make you more creative. It can actually help you to find solutions to kind of the bigger problems in your life. Um, and then that in turn should kind of reduce your long-term chronic stress if you're actually finding effective ways out of your problems, um, if you do have these kind of lingering problems. So in all of those ways, actually changing the... Um, mindset about stress can improve your immediate performance and just helps to prevent it from becoming a long-term chronic issue. And so studies have then shown that people with the positive view of stress are less likely to suffer from burnout. They even seem to be less likely to suffer from cardiovascular disease in the long term. One study from 2012 showed that actually people with a lot of stress but a positive view of stress were no more likely to die of cardiovascular disease than people who had little stress in their life. It was kind of neutralizing the effects of the stress. That's so that's really helpful. For someone listening that might be experiencing a, a bit of stress over, you know, an upcoming project or, or something like that, as you mm -hmm. described, how might someone go about that that reframing it in any sort of tactics or time frames on that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I do think if you're feeling the physiological effects of stress, like say when you are actually engaging in the project or say it's a work interview, you know, or um, giving that presentation, just kind of reframing them in the way I described can be really useful. But I think more broadly, it's also quite useful to think about why you're going through this stressful situation. Now, in some mm -hmm. cases, you know, the stress is not chosen and that I think is harder to reframe. So actually, you know, in those situations, maybe it is also useful to look for other ways to kind of manage the stress, you know, through mindfulness, that kind of stuff. Um, but if you've chosen to put yourself in this situation, it's because it means something to you. It's because it's really important for you. You know, if you're ambitious or you just really care about that work project, it's worth remembering that fact. Um, I know when I was doing public speaking, it really helped me to realise that actually, you know, I spent... Uh, years researching and writing this book, and I wanted to communicate its message to people. Now, in the past, when I had to give a talk, I would have felt that it was this huge kind of burden. Um, I was framing it as a threat, not a positive challenge that was adding meaning to my life. And actually, I think when you do that, when you reframe the nature of the event itself, that can also be really beneficial to helping you to have a more positive attitude to the stresses and to see that actually those stresses can work in your favor. I, I love that. It's it's an opportunity and that's probably closer to the reality of the situation and in, in most circumstances. Maybe it's there's an excitement and importance around it. Let me ask uh, of this nocebo effect in people taking medications and we've all seen the commercials of this may cause X, Y, and Z, how do we 
get get around that and maybe differentiate whether we're actually experience a, experiencing a particular side effect? Yeah, I mean, this is something that's affected me personally. So, you know, I um, I actually kind of, it was the trigger for me to investigate this topic um, more seriously before I wrote my book was because um, I've been writing an article about the nocebo effect showing that expectations can cause you to to kind of feel sick and that lots of drug side effects are actually caused by this. You're given the warning, as you mentioned, and then, you know, you start developing headaches or nausea, you know, whatever. Um, and actually, I was experiencing that at the time that I was writing the article because I'd just been prescribed a kind of set of antidepressants. And um, my doctor, uh, my family uh, doctor just kind of casually mentioned that, you know, one of the side effects could be really bad headaches. And, you know, the next day I started taking the pills and I also developed these really bad um, headaches. They were quite debilitating at work. You know, it felt such a sharp pain. It was like an ice pick was kind of penetrating my skull. Um, but by learning about the nocebo effect, that itself was kind of helped to neutralize that pain. Um, I actually looked up the studies for the drug I was taking, and I found that actually a lot of the people in the placebo arms receiving the sham treatment um, through this kind of warning, this expectation effect, that they had also experienced the headaches almost as much, almost to the same extent as the people in the active arm. So that information really, to me, suggested that chances were the headaches I was experiencing were coming from expectations. And, you know, very quickly, the pain kind of dissipated once I'd had that reassuring information. Um, so I think, you know, just recognising the possibility that you might be influenced by a nocebo effect, that actually has been shown in studies to be useful. It just helps you to reframe the pain in some way and just to question whether, you know, it's as bad as you think it is um, and whether it's as inevitable as you think it is. Um, that would be the main thing that I would suggest. And also just to try not to have catastrophic thinking about those terrible kind of feelings that you're having, uncomfortable feelings. Like recognise that sometimes you can experience um, real physical discomfort without it necessarily reflecting damage to your body. I think that's what's really important to recognise is that actually, you know, lots of pain, even if you're experiencing quite intense pain, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're in danger. And just that recognition can also be incredibly helpful. So cool. Appreciate you sharing that. It's it's neat that you looked up the study your, yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, you close the book with this message of being kind to yourself, which I, I loved. Could you say more? Yeah. I think in the US and the UK and probably lots of other countries, we have this kind of habit of self-criticism. Um, I almost feel like sometimes self-criticism is kind of encouraged. Um, you know, in the workplace, if you kind of make an error, I feel like you get a positive response if you like really beat yourself up about it, compared to if you're self-compassionate, where you acknowledge the mistake and look for ways that you could have avoided it, but you don't actually see it as this kind of big personal failing that is like reflects something awful about you and you just recognize that actually mistakes happen to almost everyone or failures happen to almost everyone it's a kind of thing that unites humanity and that actually like there's always possibility for kind of progress and growth even after you've made a big mistake um the research shows that actually you know, contrary to, I think, a lot of people's expectations or beliefs, having self-compassion actually makes it much easier to 
kind of um well firstly it reduces the stress that you're feeling and that has physiological benefits but it also helps you to change your habits to to actually to change your behaviors to produce positive growth in the future so if you're on a diet and you you know fail on one day but you treat yourself with self-compassion you're much more likely to continue the diet the next day and to start afresh with renewed motivation compared to if you're um, overly self-critical so I think that is really important within itself but I think it is also really important within the context of the expectation effect um, because the danger with this and you know lots of other kind of books promoting positive change is that when you fail you feel like it's automatically something inherently wrong with you. And I could totally see some readers, if I hadn't had this chapter, would have come away from this book. And, you know, they might try to cultivate like a positive mindset about going to the gym. And then they might have one day where they didn't perform as well as they'd hoped. And then they start to worry that, you know, the onus is on them, that is they, you know, are to blame and maybe they are hopeless because of it. Um, in my opinion, that's just not useful. So actually, we need to be forgiving. And actually, expectations can definitely, changing our expectations can definitely help us. But actually, sometimes our circumstances are going to override the benefits. You know, these are average effects I'm talking about, but we have to recognise that there will be fluctuations. And if you have one bad day at the gym, don't catastrophize that. Don't feel that it's a sign that you yourself are like, you know, there's something wrong with your mind or something wrong with your body. Just accept that actually maybe you'd been feeling really, you know, under pressure the whole day and that that had affected how your performance and that you could come to it the next day with renewed motivation. Or maybe you could just tell yourself that even if you perform badly, the very very fact that you were at the gym at all was itself like a big important step and it was actually your presence there and your effort that really you know, was what counted. Um, so that's that's in a nutshell what I think we why I think we should be practicing self compassion. It's really important for us to do that while we're also looking at our negative assumptions, so that we don't start to blame ourselves unnecessarily. That is such an important point, David. I appreciate you you elaborating on that. It's a wonderful place to close the the book, um, and it's a direct connection with wisdom. One of my favorite writers, Seneca, when asked about his progress towards wisdom, his response was, I've begun to become a better friend to myself. This idea mm-hmm. of kindness and self-compassion is um, is connected with, with wisdom. But this has been great. Like, Where do you point people interested in learning more about you, the book, and, and what you're up to in the world? Yeah, I mean... Um... You know, you can buy the book from any good bookstores, you know, um, online, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, but really, you know, anywhere where you get your books normally. Um, you can find more about me at www.davidrobson.me. Um, I'm also on Twitter, D underscore A underscore Robson. On Instagram, David A. Robson. On LinkedIn, just search for my name. Um, you know, I love hearing from readers. Um, so yeah, please do get in touch. And the book is The Expectation Effect. We'll link everything discussed in the show notes below. So David Robinson, thank you so much for coming on In Search Wisdom. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. 
These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.